So today I've, we've been looking and exploring the ways that mindfulness and loving kindness are really so interwoven in the practice and in the path. And I'd like to just continue that exploration to also just reflect on the ways that mindfulness and kindness are we also so interwoven with compassion? You, I think it would be fair to say that a heart of kindness is also or equally a heart of compassion. And that compassion is the very essence um, and spirit of awakening in this teaching. And that if our path and our practice and indeed our life is dedicated to awakening and to freedom, there is really a wisdom element here. And the wisdom element that is so linked to that quality of freedom and awakening is the wisdom where we are really asked to understand the nature of suffering, to understand the causes of suffering, to understand the end of suffering, and to understand the path to its end. And certainly I, I do feel that wisdom and authentic compassion together are really the two pillars of this path and need to be interwoven on every step of our journey. I know sometimes I've spoken with people and met people, you know, who tell me they're going to heroically practice insight or heroically practice concentration and imagine that as a kind of consequence of that or as a result of that, there's going to be this kind of natural flowering of compassion, which possibly may, may be true. But certainly the way that I was taught tradition that I began my practice in, that compassion was very much put at the forefront of the journey and very much put at the forefront of the whole of the practice and sense of direction. It's learning about healing suffering. It's learning about understanding what compassion means for us and what it does mean for us to live in the light of compassion. But also to let compassion not only be understood, but also perhaps to be our deepest motivation and aspiration in our path. There's a dedication I'd like to read to you that comes from the Tibetan tradition. And it's a dedication that is often put forward as a kind of sense of commitment and motivation and dedication in the beginning of every practice period, where a, a student, a practitioner, would say, may I be a protector for those in danger, a guide for travelers on the way. May I be a boat or a bridge for the, all those who wish to cross the water. May I be a lamp for those who need light. 
May I be a place of rest for those who are tired. May I be a doctor in the medicine and may I be the nurse for all those who are sick in this world until everyone is healed. Now I think compassion, the understanding and cultivation of compassion, really begins in the very same place that most of us begin our journey, which is an awareness of suffering. You know, when I ask people why they began to practice, what brought them to the path, it is very often because of meeting some quality of affliction or confusion or adversity in their life that they are aware that it's no longer a viable pathway just to live their life in flight or defense. And so there comes about that perhaps willingness to actually not be intimidated by suffering. But there's also, I think, a wisdom in understanding, yes, there is suffering in life that is optional for sure. But there is also suffering in life that cannot be fixed or avoided. The suffering is not a personal mistake (laughs) or failure. And I think the question that arises in that willingness to stop still and to meet life as it is, question that arises and a question that I've pondered over a lot is understanding that not all suffering can be fixed. What does it mean to heal suffering? What is the difference between healing suffering and fixing it? How can that which cannot be avoided life be responded to and embraced? What does it mean to bring suffering to an end? Because that's actually the the promise in this teaching or the assurance in this teaching that there is an end to suffering. To question that, in a way, those are the kind of timeless questions I think of every spiritual path and every life. Now, in Pali, the language in which the teachings were conveyed, the word for compassion is karuna, which means a trembling heart, or a heart that can tremble in the face of suffering. And what is being described here is not a particular emotion. It's not describing compassion as a particular feeling. But it's really describing an awake and open and spacious and a way unshakable heart. But there is a wisdom, a very profound wisdom element in that. And the wisdom element that is said to be really at the foundation of compassion is, is the understanding, is the compassion that is rooted in a very keen clear awareness of the interconnectedness and the interdependence of all things and all life. The wisdom element is also the quality of fearlessness that is born of deeply understanding the emptiness of all views of self and other. 
Now, compassion, as I mentioned, is not presented as a destination, but as a practice, as a cultivation. Not as a noun, but as a verb. I feel that compassion is perhaps the most meaningful embodiment of emotional maturity and emotional freedom. And the Dalai Lama once said that if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. Now we can see the relationship of mindfulness here because for the heart to tremble, it's clear that first we really do need to be awake. We do really need to be aware, to be mindful. For us to learn to open and to be steadfast in the face of suffering and pain, we need to find the ways to, near, to stay near to that which is difficult to be near to. And that is part of mindfulness also. That gesture of intimacy, that gesture of coming close to that which we would be most likely prone or most habitually prone to flee from or disconnect from. Now, in the path of mindfulness, we're encouraged to contemplate the body internally and externally. To contemplate the story of our body in a very real way is to contemplate the story of all bodies. We're encouraged to contemplate feeling internally and externally, knowing that to contemplate the landscape of our heart is really to contemplate the landscape of all hearts. We're asked to contemplate the mind internally and externally. Really in doing this practice and in being intimate with the rhythms of our own mind, we are in a very real way contemplating all mind. And that encouragement to me, and I know that instruction to contemplate internally and externally, is read and translated and and understood in many different ways. But one of the ways of understanding it is that that encouragement is, is really an encouragement to reach beyond the boundaries of our own personal story. To know our story well, but to know that in our story, we kind of see a microcosmic view of all stories and all lives. And that contemplation, you know, if we really undertake that with mindfulness, it kind of nudges us towards an understanding (coughs) of our interconnectedness and our interdependence. And that is the movement towards compassion. The encouragement to see ourselves and others and to see others in ourselves. And what is it, you know, to, to look again at what does it mean to contemplate internally and externally? You know, what we do see is that the world, as one teacher once said, this world is not made of atoms, but this world is made of stories. Now, the world as we know it is actually a world of interwoven stories. 
You think of all the stories, the life stories that are held within this room. You know, and in so many ways, of course, your story is unique to you. You know, my story is unique to me. And yet when we really look more deeply at our stories, we actually see that there are universal themes that run through all of them. If you reflect upon your own story, your own experience that you've had in your life of loss, of disappointment, that you've been asked to meet and embrace, you remember or aware of the ways in your life that you've suffered through rejection or through blame, remembering the moments of, of heartache born of despair or loneliness or fear. If you think of the story of your body, some of the pain and illness you've met or may be meeting right now, the story of your mind and what your mind can do, some of its loveliness, but also some of its torment, its obsession, its self-judgment, its blame. If you think of your life and some of the adversity and affliction you've been asked to meet, And then just imagine expanding your awareness just a little. To sense the people who sit on either side of you. The people who sit in front of you and behind you. And do we imagine that anyone is exempt? Do we imagine that there's anyone in this room that's not been asked to meet their own measure of hardship or adversity or affliction? Is there even one person who doesn't know what it means to be lonely or to to struggle or to be afraid? Is there even one person who's not experienced pain or illness? It is the story of life. It doesn't diminish or lessen in any way our story. But I think the understanding of interconnectedness is the the encouragement to understand the tapestry both of joy and of sorrow that is woven in this life. The size of the cloth. The size of the cloth. There's a story from the time of the Buddha of a young woman who had been born into quite a lowly family. And she'd kind of married upwards, as they say. And, and yet she was very badly treated in her new household. Until she had a son, gave birth to a son. And after the birth of her son, well, there came with her son also a kind of level of esteem and, and respect that had never been there before. And then, very sadly, her child died. And Kisa Gotami was her name, distraught with grief, went everywhere looking for comfort and for solace. And at one point she went to the Buddha cradling the body of her son in her arms and saying to the Buddha, you know, I've heard of your kind of immeasurable wisdom, your immeasurable compassion. Do this one thing for me and bring my son back to life. And the Buddha said to her, he asked her to go out into the village 
and to knock on the door of every house in the village. And he said, if you can bring back to me a mustard seed from any house that has not had anybody died, perhaps your son will return. And of course, Kisugatami went through the village knocking on every door, saying, have you ever, ever had anyone die here? Have you ever lost anyone you loved? And of course, at every household, she met the same answer. The yes, here too. We've known someone who died. Here too, we have lost someone we loved. And she went back to the Buddha, holding her son, and as she's speaking to the body of her son, saying, you know, dear one, I thought you alone had been overtaken by the suffering called death. But you're not the only one. And in the, as the story goes, she saw in herself all of the mothers through all of time who had cradled their dead children. But of course, that's not the whole story. It is not only the story of the suffering that comes with loss. And here, you know, this talk is going to sound pretty bleak for a while, you know, because I'm going to go through all these layers of dukkha, you know, all of these layers of suffering. But bear in mind, the reason that we do this is because to understand the size of the cloth is to understand the possibility of really healing suffering, the freedom from suffering. And part of the story of suffering, which perhaps is also a difficult part, is there any one of us here who has not experienced a time when our hearts or our minds have been shattered by confusion or ignorance, when we've spoken? Is there any one of us here who has never, ever spoken or acted out of greed or rage or hatred? And when we look at the world around us, it's hard to find anyone at all who has not done the same. And again, this is not the whole of the story. Can we understand that we live in a world where all beings are united in their longing for safety, for, for happiness, for protection? That all beings throughout the world are united in their longing to be free from pain and from fear and long for care and understanding and love. Again, can we see, when we look at the world around us, the anger, the terror, even the ignorance of others, also not as theirs, but as ours? As if we are all part of a single organism, being born together, living together, breathing together, and dying together, and actually doing our best to find a way to peace and happiness and freedom. I think it is really this wisdom element, this understanding of interconnectedness, is the ground of a heart of kindness. It's really the ground of a compassionate heart that leads to a compassionate life. Milarepa, who was one of the great teachers of the past, he said, just as I instinctively reach out to care for and heal a wound in my leg as part of this body, why should I not reach out instinctively to heal and care for a wound in another 
wherever it exists, as part of this body. Now, out of this understanding of interconnectedness, there, there rises a natural and wise compassion that there is suffering, there is a trembling of the heart, there is an instinctive reaching out. It is a gesture of unconditional compassion. It is a compassion or a response that doesn't pass through the filters that says, you know, is this act or is this person worthy or unworthy of compassion? You know, is this deserving of compassion or not deserving? There is no blame, no resistance, no hierarchy in compassion. It is not like, you know, some people tell me, you know, when they look at the world around them, that they find it very hard to really, you know, and that the great suffering in the world around them, that they find it very hard to actually feel that their own kind of ailments or tormented mind or, you know, struggling heart that is worthy of compassion. But there actually is no hierarchy in compassion. It is that instinctive reaching out. The Dalai Lama once said recently that compassion is a radicalism of our time. And I've really reflected on that a lot to try to understand what is really radical about compassion. And my understanding that the radical part of compassion is that it is really learning to swim against the tide of self-protection, of self-cherishing kind of two of the most predominant themes you know how much we're told in our life or in our culture you know you know or even just come to understand how much we have to look out for ourselves and stand our ground and fight our corner how much we need to fear others how much it's we should be pursuing the dream of a perfect life in which we find as much personal happiness as we can and unfortunately I think this is the unfortunate part, that unfortunately we tend to equate happiness with having more and more pleasant feelings and experiences and sensations and events. Now, I I do feel it's really important to understand that it's very human. It's very, very human to want to turn away from the unpleasant and the difficult. But then we often see happiness as going to be born by our success at getting rid of suffering. There was a teacher who was once asked, you know, what is the secret of your happiness? And he answered, it's a complete and unrestricted cooperation with the unavoidable. Which is basically life. But if we see happiness as being dependent upon getting rid of suffering, we're basically going to be waging a war with life. We're going to be engaged in a battle with life. And then there's so little ground for compassion to arise. Because compassion really lies in our ability and our willingness to find that unrestricted cooperation with the unavoidable. 
I think it's very important to acknowledge, you know, and this was, you know, kind of a, a challenging part for me, I know, in my own practice, to acknowledge that self-consciousness and self-protection, that we shouldn't take it too personally. It's very important to do, to not take it too personally. You know, when I first heard teachings about self, self-protection, self-cherishing, I felt so embarrassed and so ashamed, you know. I thought, oh, gosh, you know, now they know, you know, somebody knows, and, you know, is this really some sort of personal failure? This whole teaching is about actually don't take it too personally. You know, self-protection and self-cherishing happen. But to see that that and all the anxiety that arises from it is kind of part of the human condition and the human dilemma. Not something to be ashamed of or feel badly about. It's there. But to also acknowledge that in truth, our preoccupation and attachment to ourselves doesn't actually bring us happiness. But it actually causes suffering. And compassion is not an encouragement to move from self-preoccupation to self-loathing, you know, or self-denial. It is not that. It's not an encouragement to start blaming and shaming ourselves for being self-centered, but just to look at this simple actuality of self-obsession and self-preoccupation, because surely there, isn't it? I mean, if we were really honest with ourselves, you know, a lot of our day is really spent around me, isn't it? <laughs> you know, what I want, what I don't want, you know, how am I going to get it, how am I going to get rid of it, you know. So it's a lot of it is really about me. But to look at that really fearlessly and wisely without taking it too personally, and then does this lead to suffering? Does it lead to the end of suffering? And actually seeing that a lot of that kind of tangled knot of selfing is suffering in itself and is out of that insight and wisdom that we learn to hold it a little bit more lightly and to widen our circle of concern, to be deeply concerned for the well-being of all beings and to know that my happiness is in truth directly linked to your happiness. That my fear is so interwoven with yours. That in reality, the depth of happiness in our lives is equal to the depth of our sense of relatedness and connectedness, inwardly and outwardly. You know, again, as the Dalai Lama said it, I have found that the greatest degree of inner tranquility comes from the development of love and compassion. That the more we care for the happiness of others, the greater is our own sense of well-being. That cultivating compassion for all puts the mind at ease. Now, compassion, like loving-kindness, really counters the tendency to fear or to resist or to avoid suffering. It counters the tendency to turn away. We might say that the tendency or the inclination of compassion is actually to turn towards suffering. Dogen, Dogen, a teacher of the past, he asked his teacher, he asked his teacher, what is the mind of compassion? And his teacher answered, it's a soft and flexible mind. 
And Dogen asked again, he said, what is a soft mind? And the teacher answered, it is the willingness to let go of your body and mind. That's interesting. So how do we cultivate this soft and receptive mind? Well, we begin by acknowledging that we sit in the center of the world of all suffering. It happens to be where we are in this moment. It is where every human being is sitting in the same place with us in the center of that same world. We sit with all the anger and pain and hardship we meet in our lives and we know that all beings are doing exactly the same thing. And it's where the Buddha sat when he sat underneath the Bodhi tree. You know, Bab Anderson, he said, he said the Buddhas, Buddhas don't sit on the edge of suffering. They don't sit in the suburbs. They sit downtown. It is where we already are. We simply need to open our hearts to that truth. Because this too, I think, is where compassion is really radical. Because it really asks us to find that fearlessness of a Buddha. It doesn't mean that there is no fear. There can be plenty of fear. But it does mean that we find the steadiness and steadfastness of heart, that the vast, a heart that is vast enough to meet fear without being overwhelmed. Fear can be there without us taking it up and running with it and closing it down, fear can be there without us becoming fearful. Because we are so see so clearly how fear and self-protection get so tied together in this terrible marriage. And, you know, culturally, I think, I mean, I, it may, I think it's heartbreaking to see the way sometimes, <clears throat> you know, through our media and our, our kind of culture fears that we get more and more encouraged to live a fearful life you know to to see a virtue in being suspicious and mistrustful to blame or to hate and we what we see in our world that actually we can't afford that fearful life how it solidifies the story of self and other and how it only perpetuates alienation and in conflict and the end i think the end of that alienation in truth really only does begin with us and nowhere else. In a sense, that is the radical part of compassion. I think it's renouncing the pathways of fear. I think it's renouncing the pathways of alienation. And it's to connect again and again with that soft and receptive mind. You know, a couple of years ago, I am, um, you know, and, and this is actually, I must say that this is kind of just a tangent, but to say that this is actually certainly what it inspired me first to begin to practice, you know, that when I began to practice, I, I was a teenager who lived a fairly, you know, middle class, but also incredibly desperate adolescence. Um, and I ended up in this in this village of Tibetan refugees in India, really pretty much by accident. You know, I really didn't have that plan. 
But what astounded me was actually meeting with and speaking with these people. You know, and this was this was in the early 70s, so there were many people just continuing to come over the mountains from Tibet. And people who'd suffered just incredible torment. I mean, beyond, beyond uh, actually imagining. And yet, you know, there, there was something there where their hearts were so intact. Where there was such a an absence of, of feelings of blame or hatred or or vengeance, you know, where there truly was that sense that these people actually knew something I really didn't know. They actually knew how to meet that kind of suffering, and it had something to do with their practice. You know, and the story that really kind of encapsulated that for me a couple of years ago is I. I went to listen to um, a, Tibet, a Tibetan monk speak. Uh, he was a man who'd been in prison for 21 years. And a lot of it was in solitary confinement, and he'd been beaten and tortured and mistreated on pretty much a daily basis. And yet he emerged, and, and you know what he's done since he emerged from that is he goes around actually the world, and he he speaks about these those years, and he he speaks about his experience of those years, and I think everybody who ever meets him is absolutely so deeply moved by the fact that his heart truly is intact. He doesn't speak of of despair or hatred, and there was a time after he. He came to India, and the Dalai Lama asked him, he says, he said, was you, were you ever really in danger of losing your life? And he said, there was a lot of times I was in danger of losing my life. He said, but the, the time of greatest danger for me were the times, the moments when I was in danger of losing compassion for my jailers. Now, it's, when he speaks about it, it seems to suggest that in those years he felt many things other than compassion. Who wouldn't? But that despite the range of those feelings, his commitment, it was his commitment to compassion that enabled him to survive, but, not, but to do something much more than survive. To actually discover that kind of nobility of heart I was really speaking about on the first evening of this weekend. And there was this little biographical sketch that someone wrote about him, about their meeting with this monk. It said, an appearance almost of timidity on first meeting, a voice so quiet it might be a whisper. He could easily pass unnoticed until you met his gaze a gaze filled with the perception of one who has seen so much that he's seen everything, seen beyond the suffering he has experienced, beyond all the evil and abuse he has witnessed, yet expressing boundless compassion for his fellow human beings. Now, compassionate heart has these qualities of softness, flexibility, receptivity, vulnerability, but also needs wisdom and discernment. Because, you know, it's very easy to romanticize this quality of fearlessness, but I'm sure that there are times for everywhere, everyone where you feel do feel in danger of being overwhelmed. 
But you do feel in danger of just kind of losing it, you know, and being a, being swamped by the the magnitude of sometimes difficulty or pain that you're asked to meet, either inwardly or outwardly. And it's so true that the soft, the compassionate heart really needs the wisdom and the vigilance and the protection of mindfulness. Needs the protection of mindfulness. It is mindfulness that allows us to meet not only pain, but also to meet our own responses to pain. Sometimes of anger, sometimes of despair, sometimes of blame that can and do arise in the face of suffering. To know how to embrace them, surround them with spaciousness and calmness that allows them to arise and pass without getting lost. I mean, we need to know how to listen, but we also need and and how to to engage in wise and compassionate action and but we also know, need to know how to step back. You know, sometimes I see people, they, they adopt compassionate position. You know, and even though their hearts are so shaken, they're saying, I've got to stay there, I've got to stay there, I've got to stay there. There are times, actually, when we need to pause and to rest and to reclaim the steadiness of our own hearts. I think it's... When does compassion most easily falter or fail for us? Now, in my understanding, it's in two areas. One place where compassion can seem to falter or fail is in the seeming impossibility of bringing suffering to an end. And the second place where compassion, I think, easily fails is in the face of ignorance, in the face of those who abuse or misuse or who perpetuate suffering, who inflict harm. Recently, and I'm sure many of you also have seen that very brief piece in some of the newspapers in this country, where this woman in a refugee camp in Darfur says that every moment she wakes up, every morning she wakes up facing two impossible choices. That if she goes out to fetch water, she risks the almost certain possibility of being raped or killed. That if she doesn't go out to fetch water in the morning, she faces the almost certain possibility that her children will die of thirst. It is one story amongst the countless stories in this world of people who face the unimaginable. And yet within this seemingly unimaginable breadth of suffering, the size of the cloth, we're actually asked in this practice to imagine, to to not only acknowledge the seeming impossibility of ending suffering, but to act as if it is possible to do so. That's the, I think that's the paradox that we're asked to embrace in this life. To acknowledge the seeming impossibility of ending suffering, but to live and act in a way as if it is possible to do so. In the Bodhisattva tradition, a tradition of compassion, 
The Bodhisattva vows, says, although suffering is endless, I vow to end it. I vow to end it. Now, people sometimes speak of compassion fatigue happening. But I think compassion fatigue doesn't just happen because suffering seems impossible to end. I think it also happens because sometimes we see compassion as a solution. That ending suffering means somehow fixing it. We have an agenda for change. You know, and I think it's so important to make that distinction. To again and again find a depth of empathy, trembling, responsiveness, compassion, that asks for nothing in return. That a compassion that acts and lives in a way as if it is truly possible to heal suffering and to free all beings from pain and suffering and to do this in the face of the impossible. Taking our seat in compassion, it's finding the willingness to listen to the cries of the world, to gently align ourselves with that commitment to protect and heal, to protect our own hearts from despair and ill will and anger and fear, And every time we do this, we actually lessen the mountain of suffering. Now, the second place where compassion easily falters is in the face of those people who perpetuate violence and suffering and pain, who abuse, even those who in much less harmful ways may wound us or others through through judgment or through harshness. Now, this is the really tricky part of compassion, but I'd like to take you back to the Vasudhimaga, which is one of the commentaries on, on the teachings. And in the Vasudhimaga, this is the way people are encouraged to practice compassion. That the first domain of compassion is to hold in one's attention all of those in this world who are suffering, all of those who are innocent and blameless. You know, it might be a child with cancer. It might just simply be the suffering of an elderly person, a person who's struck down with a grievous illness. They did nothing to deserve this. You know, this is blameless suffering. And then you're asked to imagine and to visualize and to invite into your heart someone who is aging and to expand that and to imagine all of these people in this world who are suffering with aging. You're asked to invite into your heart someone who is dying and then to expand your attention to imagine all of the people in this world who in this very moment are dying. You're asked to imagine someone in your heart, to invite into your heart someone who is caught in some sort of natural tragedy of drought or flood and to expand your attention, your heart, to include all of those in this world in that moment. Then, this is a very strange part, then you're asked to invite into your attention someone who causes pain. Someone who causes pain. And to see that their suffering is twofold. That there is the suffering, the pain that is born of their acts of anger or blame. And there is the suffering of ignorance. 
And now sometimes when we invite, you know, or really meet someone who causes pain, it does feel that anger or kind of, you know, rage is more appropriate than compassion. But if, if compassion cannot embrace the reality of ignorance, then it cannot embrace the reality of suffering. I think that's the simple truth. You know, we, I'm sure, you know, in, in many, perhaps many small ways, we have seen the ways that our own lives at times have been guided by ignorance, by confusion, by delusion, when we've said or done things that have hurt others. Now expand that. Do we imagine all other, we are the only ones? This is really the hardest, the most challenging, but perhaps the most important part of compassion. That certainly, you know, when you meet an innocent, blameless person suffering and compassion comes so naturally, doesn't it? It comes so easily. What does it mean to have that compassion also embrace ignorance? If there was no ignorance in this world, there would be a lot less suffering. But there is a lot of suffering because there is a lot of ignorance. Ryokan, he once said, Oh, that my monk's robes were wide enough to gather up all the people in this floating world. Now, I had a lot of trouble with this teaching when I was first exposed to it, you know, the compassion that embraces suffering. My teacher used to say to me, used to say, swallow the blame. And I'd say, but, 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 you know. And he'd say, and I'd say, but that person's doing that, you know, and that person's doing that. And he just had to say, he said, swallow the blame, swallow the blame, swallow the blame. I'd say, no way if I swallow the blame, they're going to get away with it, you know. Or, you know, if I swallow the blame, you know, I'm not confronting it, you know. He'd say, swallow the blame, swallow the blame. He, you know, this mountain, I felt like throttling him, you know. He had this thing about swallow the blame, and it took me such a long time to understand what he really meant is, is the acknowledgement that ignorance too is part of the mandala of suffering. Just as much as a broken heart is, an ailing body, a tormented mind, so too is ignorance part of the mandala of suffering. And that there is no boundaries to compassion. Now it's interesting, it's not expecting a kind of perfection for us. Even the Dalai Lama said recently, he said, I can't pretend to practice compassion all the time. He said, but it gives me tremendous inspiration. Deep inside, I realize how valuable, how beneficial, and how transforming it is. That is all. I think it is often in the face of ignorance that we perhaps begin to discover a depth of compassion that we ever never actually knew was possible for us. Sometimes it's said that true prayer begins when, when all doors have closed and our hearts have turned to stone. In this teaching, you know, the Buddha speaks about the liberation of the heart through compassion, through kindness. And within that, the element, the quality of mindfulness is so important, the sense of intimacy, the sense of connectedness, the sense of being near to. The element of kindness, of softness, is so essential to learn how to embrace and to cooperate with the unavoidable, with a heart that is truly free of ill will. And the liberation of the heart through compassion 
is really discovering that kind of fearlessness and unshakability where our hearts can tremble in the face of suffering, can know when to act, when to say no to the causes of suffering, but above all can really know how to be steadfast, how to be present. If we take just a couple of moments quietly together, then have a walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.